How's everybody this morning? Uh, my name is Sam Caston Smith, and I'm the headmaster of Bethany Christian School across the street and an assistant pastor on staff here at Rio Vista. And uh, I'm coming over a little bit of a cold, so I'm a little more nasally than normal. And uh, are you as nervous as I am about having all these flames <laughs> around me? Like, seriously, I made it through last night without burning the church down, but. Keep an eye on me. Just give me a heads up if I'm getting close. <clears throat> We're in the second week of Advent, and Advent is the season of longing. And Christmas is when we come together and we celebrate that God, in all of His love and all of His abundant love for us, has become, has taken on flesh and has become a baby to that point, God's greatest gift to the world to enter into our humanity, to take on our sufferings, and ultimately to go to the cross and take all of our sins and ailments and the curse of death and to conquer it all for us. But this season of Advent that leads to that is where we enter into the season of longing where we take a look at all the things that hurt, all the wastelands, all the deserts in our own lives, all of the, the pains and scars and hopes and longings and fears and anxieties, and where we take inventory and we remember that the same One who came as a baby is going to come again. And He is going to deliver us. He's already delivered us from the curse of sin and death and the, the consequence of it. But then He shall come to make it perfect and to bring us into glory, into a life and a world where death and suffering and longing and all the things of our broken world will be put down forever. And we long for that. Think of the things in your life that you're longing for, your fears that you have. You're broken, the things that break your heart, the things that you've cried out, Lord, please. That's what Advent is for, is to remember that. To remember all the places where you just can't do it on your own. And to remember that the Lord is coming to make all things new. Today's passage in Matthew 3 we find John the Baptist. And he's out in the wilderness. And he's opening this door of hope. He's announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in one sense, he's offering this great promise. But then he comes alongside of that and he reminds us that there is a judgment that's coming too. And in the condition our world is in, in the condition that our hearts are in, he's telling us very mercifully that we need to take the coming judgment very, very seriously. And he takes his ministry happens in the Judean wilderness, which unlike our wilderness where we think of trees and forests in America, the wilderness of Judea looks like this. It is barren. If you've been to Israel and you go down to the Judean wilderness or the Negev desert, you will find that it is rocks and sand for miles upon miles upon miles. And as you're driving and traveling through that, you think, good grief, can you at least like give me a tree or something? 
One of my favorite things, I got to go to Israel with Tom six years ago and a, and a number of you here today. One of my favorite stops is after we're traveling through the Judean wilderness that for miles upon miles upon miles, we get to stop at a place called En Gedi. And En Gedi is one of these places where when you go there, it's just like, ah, oh, you know, if you read the Song of Solomon, when Solomon takes the voice of the bride and she's singing to her bridegroom, the Lord, she compares the Lord to En Gedi. And En Gedi, in the midst of all this region of death and desolation, looks like this. Right in between these two mountains and this kind of little crevasse that's out in the middle of nowhere and you think, how in the world could this be here? There's, there's springs and there's waterfalls and there's henna blossoms and there's an abundance of life in a land that is totally desolate. And when you get there, it's just like... <laughs> The, the picture, oh, this is what Solomon means. This is the Lord. This beautiful picture, this oasis in the midst of, of death. And that is going to be a message that John is going to drive home in this passage today. That we, our hearts, our culture, our nations, this world is overrun with all kinds of desolation. But the wellspring of life is coming and He is coming on a mission to overrun and transform our deserts and our wildernesses back to the garden of the Lord. Prepare the way because that's the mission. The kingdom of heaven is coming into this world on a mission to transform our deserts, our wilderness into gardens. And John the Baptist, man, I've, if there was a passionate enough man to strike the consciousness of Israel back to the Lord, this is that man. He is all in. He is a, a very fervent guy. He's the son of a priest. Zechariah, if you remember Luke 1, when you read the story right at the beginning of the Gospel, he's in the temple, right? So he's a priest and he's burning incense to the Lord. And everybody is longing for the Messiah, but they know this, that the Messiah cannot return to Israel until the return of Elijah. You see, there had been a 400-year drought and hearing any word from the Lord, from any prophet, nobody had come. There had been silence, which just makes that echo. It makes the, the longing even worse. Where are you, God? I mean, our nation has been handed from Assyrians to Babylonians to Persians to Macedonians to the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and now the Romans. Are you ever going to do what you promised all throughout the prophets from 700 years before Jesus all the way to 400 years before Jesus? You kept promising that you were going to send this king who would establish a kingdom of everlasting righteousness and peace and hope. Where is He? And now you've been silent for 400 years. And the last prophet that God had sent to Israel before the coming of Jesus 400 years ago was a guy named Malachi. And in his closing of his writings, he says, the Messiah will not come until Elijah comes again. 
And so Gabriel, fast forward, Zechariah, John the Baptist, dad's in the temple, he's burning incense, praying to the Lord for deliverance, and boom, the angel Gabriel appears to him and he says, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah says, you don't understand, my wife is old, she's barren, she can't have a son. And Gabriel says, you don't know your Old Testament very well. I'm a God who specializes in bringing life from barrenness. And he says, you're going to have a son. And his job is going to be to make the people prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And then he says this, and you know Zechariah's ears perk up. He will go forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You mean my son is going to be the one that opens the door for the Messiah to come? to make things right, to bring about this kingdom of peace and righteousness? Yeah. And so John the Baptist is the son of a priest who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's the son of a daughter of Aaron, Elizabeth, who's also a Levite. When, when Elizabeth, pregnant near full term, comes into the presence of the pregnant Mary, even then, what do we see? John the Baptist filled with the spirit in the womb is leaping in the presence of the Spirit of Christ. And he boldly confronted the powerful. He lifted up the low and the downtrodden. He was the most popular person in Israel at this time. The historians tell us that Herod feared him because he had the command of the people. The religious leaders, these cocky religious leaders who were so self-righteous, went out to John hoping to get his approval. He was the most powerful voice in Israel at this time. And at the height of his ministry, at the height of his power, at the height of all this, when Jesus emerges on the scene, John the Baptist is so amazing that when Jesus comes, He tells His followers, stop following Me. Follow Him. He's greater than I. I must decrease. He must increase. Follow Him. And the whole ministry of baptism is about making things new. That's what it's about. You read in Romans 6, what does our baptism represent? It reminds us when we are baptized into Christ that we go down, we die to our former way of life. We are buried in a sense. Sorry for the immersion reference for the Presbyterians. But you go down beneath the waters. And I'm a Presbyterian, full disclosure. Ordained in the PCA, maybe not tomorrow. But anyway... (laughs) We're allowed to dunk. We are allowed to dunk. We are. Anyway, you go down into the waters, right? Burial. And you come up out of the waters. Resurrection. New life. And it's the idea that all of the old ways are being left behind and you are being brought into this new way of walking in the resurrection power of Christ. And whenever God brings about a new beginning, He, he kind of puts a thumbprint on it. shows you there's one author of this book called the Bible. It's pretty awesome. In the New Testament, when it refers, because baptism's new. John the Baptist is the first person we find baptizing. That word doesn't exist in the Old Testament. But the New Testament says there's pictures of baptism back in the Old Testament. Creation, the flood, the crossing of the Red Sea. And every time you see that, you see in the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth, but the earth is formless and void and dark and covered by waters and there's no life. And so what does God do? 
The Spirit of God flutters down above the surface of the waters and God speaks and says, let there be light. And light emerges into the darkness and He separates the waters and He creates a sanctuary for man to dwell in, right? There's the Spirit hovering. A new beginning. He's leaving behind the barrenness before. Or you get to Noah when God covers the waters again and what does He send to announce Noah's deliverance? The dove, right? Carrying the olive branch and then the waters recede and it's a new beginning and Noah plants a vineyard just as God had planted a garden. Or with, with Moses, right? When he comes up to the, to the Red Sea and the pillar of fire shone in the darkness and it says, the Ruach, which is the Spirit or the wind, came upon the waters. And what happens? The waters part. There's a lot of that theme. You follow? And it's a new beginning for the people of Israel. And they leave their life of slavery and death in Egypt behind. And here you have this next picture with the Messiah entering into the Jordan. And what happens? The heavens themselves part and the dove comes down. And the dove, that picture is announcing your former ways are done. Behold, one is coming. He's coming and He's going to make all things new. But it's not Adam. It's not Noah. It's not Moses. It's Yahweh, mighty God Himself in the flesh. And He will not fail. Though all of history has been trying to return to the garden from the wilderness we've made of this world, this one will not fail. He is mighty God. And so the passage begins, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I want to just stop, like I've been asked before if I, if I was interested in church planning and when you're a church planner, one of the things that you need to, to think about is location. Well, John the Baptist like gets a straight up F minus on this. Because if, if I'm planning a church, the last place I'm going is in the middle of nowhere in the sticks of South Dakota. Or in the middle of the Sahara where there's nobody living there. John the Baptist goes there and says, yeah, this looks like a good place to plant a church. There's no one there. Why in the world are you going into the wilderness and expecting to have a ministry. And here's the crazy thing. The Bible tells us that all of Judea and all of Jerusalem and all the regions of Israel are going to Him in the wilderness. Repenting and confessing their sins. Why in the world does John choose to go into the wilderness? And I'll tell you why. Because that's the place where you get real with God. You don't have all your trinkets. You've got to leave behind your comforts. You've got to leave behind your status. You've got to leave behind your wealth. You can't come with your reputation and your identity and your dreams and your businesses out there. You are left alone to contend with Almighty God. There's no tablets or iPhones or computers or televisions and cars and gadgets to distract you. You are left alone to contend with the God of the universe in a place that reminds you how small and inadequate you are. 
In fact, where John is at the Jordan, the Jordan, the name Jordan in Hebrew literally means to go down because it pours into the lowest place on the surface of the earth, the Dead Sea, where nothing lives. Its salinity is ten times that of the ocean. Nothing lives in there. And John is calling people, come, confess your sins, go down, humble yourselves, long, come to a place that's going to remind you what your soul looks like apart from God. You are desolate. And all the things that you would want to bring are mere crutches. Your wealth cannot save you. Your reputation cannot save you. Your everything that you put your hope in in this world, if it is apart from Christ and God, and 200 years is going to do you no good. You bring nothing. Your life apart from God is barren. You can't take any of it with you. And so He calls them, repent. Repent. Recognize how empty you are. And come to the Lord and grab hold of Him. We want to dig our own wells out in this wilderness. Jeremiah 2 says this, and I love it because man, I need this every day. Jeremiah 2 says, my people, God says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken Me. The wellspring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that can't hold water. Cisterns are these holes in the ground like pools where they would try to store up water for themselves. And God is saying to them, why are you trying to do this in your own strength? Why are you trying to do all of this? And, and you're killing yourself and your water's not all that good and it's stagnant and it's leaking and it's draining and eventually there's going to be none left when I, the wellspring of living water, am here daily to give you nourishment and life. Come to Me! And for centuries, and even today, the nations, the people, we want to do it in our own strength. We want to rely on our cisterns. And John is saying, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's coming. It's here. It's now. For this is He, Matthew tells us, this is He, John the Baptist, who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And hear that because in the original Hebrew, the way of the Lord, he's saying Yahweh in the original this isn't some guy who shows up. This is Yahweh, the same God who, who appeared to Moses at the burning bush and was on Mount Sinai and, and came through for David and Elijah and the patriarchs. This God is coming. This, this God is coming to inaugurate a kingdom. Make His paths straight. John's whole mission is to make the people ready. To give them kind of a salt tab, if you will, on their tongue. To make them thirst for the Savior. And this whole business about preparing the way and building highways for Him and, and making His path straight, that doesn't just end when Jesus comes. That is still our mission this day. We are building the highways of the Lord into our neighborhoods, into our businesses. We are building, we are the channels that God uses to take Himself into the lives of other people near us. 
John the Baptist's mission is our mission. He's quoting from Isaiah 40, which says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. He's coming about to bring about a great leveling. What will Jesus say in His Gospels? He says that He's coming to do what? To humble the proud and to exalt the humbled. He's coming to level the mountains and to exalt the literal word. To exalt the valleys. To those of us who have rough edges, He's coming to smooth us out. He's coming to make all things right. In Luke's Gospel, when they say, well, what does this mean? Jesus says that for those of you who have two tunics, give one to those who have none. Level things out. Be charitable. Seek to make things right and just in the world. But John Whose, whose calling comes from the book of Isaiah, who goes out into the wilderness, who's promising what's going to come on the other side, knows the book of Isaiah well. And I want you to do me a favor. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to hear these words that would have been so precious to John that are in the book of Isaiah that talk about what God is going to do with the wilderness. What is God going to do with the wastelands in our hearts? What is God going to do with the wastelands in our community? This is what the Lord says. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her wastelands and makes her wilderness like Eden. The desert like the garden of the Lord and joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving in the voice of song. The wilderness shall be glad and the desert shall rejoice. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And the waters are going to break forth in the wilderness and the streams and the deserts and the thirsty ground and the springs of water and the grass shall become reeds and rushes and the highway, that highway that John is looking for, that highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. Strengthen those with weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those that have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will make all things right. And He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like the deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And as he gets into the, the close of what this consummation looks like, he offers this promise absolutely beautiful he says you shall no more be termed forsaken your land shall no more be termed desolate but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the lord delights in you and your land shall be married and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so your god shall rejoice over you do you hear how amazing that is? Your God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over a bride. Everybody in here, I'm assuming probably, has been to a wedding. 
You know what my favorite part of the wedding is? It's watching the faces of the bride and the groom. So when the bride turns the corner and she's decked out in white and she's, her hair's done and she, she looks absolutely radiant and beautiful and she's coming down the aisle and then you look up at the groom who's just waiting for her and his face is melting and sometimes he's crying. And all that he's been waiting for in that moment you can just sense the emotion beaming out of him. Well, let me, let me give you kind of a, a spoiler of what you're in for. On that day, when you are clothed and white and glorified and made to be so brilliant and beautiful in the image of the Lord, when you, His bride, turn the corner and He sees you, the words, my delight is in her, Wow. That the bridegroom will rejoice over his bride as God rejoices over you. This is no distant God. This is a God who delights in you. And all of your wastelands, all of your hurts, and all of your scars, just as much as you will rejoice to be rid of them, He will rejoice more. He will rejoice more. Matthew 3, 4, 6, moving on. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. It's telling you that's exactly how Elijah dressed. So there again, he's the Elijah. And his food was locust and honey, which is interesting because if I come to you and I say, hey, what do you think of when I say locust in the Bible? First thing that jumps to your mind, judgment, plagues, maybe revelation or the book of Joel, all judgments. That's John's diet, and he accompanies it with honey. Well, what do you think of when I say honey in the Bible? You think of the land of milk and honey. You think of promise. You think of sweetness. You think of something that's everlasting, the only food that never spoils. And here John is eating a diet of judgment and a diet of promise, and that's exactly what his message is going to be. Judgment is coming, but a promise of a Savior who can deliver you from it. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to Him. And they were baptized by Him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to His baptism... Now stop for a moment and ask yourself, how does He see the Pharisees and Sadducees coming? He's got thousands of people. I mean, all Jerusalem, Judea, they're all coming out to Him. But He sees the Pharisees and Sadducees. Why? Because no doubt, like every other place they went, they come out with their tassels and their bells ringing and pomp and circumstance and, oh, here come the religious guys. They come out to the wilderness wanting to bring their reputation, wanting to bring all these things that they had built up with their own hands into the presence of God. And John says, not here. Uh-uh. You're not bringing that into the wilderness. You come alone. Leave that stuff behind. And he says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You guys talk a big game, but you show none of this in action. Go bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. He's just told them that they're the offspring of vipers. But they say, I, we have Abraham as our father. And he says, no, you don't. 
And don't presume that your heritage or what your, your grandparents did has any effect. God has no grandchildren. God has sons and daughters. Get right with the Lord yourself. Don't lean on what previous generations did. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. And I tell you what, thank God for that because you are looking at a former dead stone. Peter will call all of us living stones, right? We are all before Christ dead in our sins and trespasses, all overrun by selfishness and self-righteousness. And you have to die to all of that stuff so that Christ can come and raise you up and make you a living stone. Thank God that God can raise up the dead stones. You know, this whole purpose of why John is baptizing, and I love this picture. He is longing for something better. He's looking forward to the day when God is going to come and reign as king. And you know what? God has done that one time before this in history. After Moses led them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and then Joshua brought them, God was going to reign as their king and they were going to have the law of God reigning over all the people. But here's the deal. That kingdom was entirely dependent upon whether the people could obey and be righteous. And when they weren't, they demanded a different king and God was cast off and God gave them over. In this new kingdom that John is announcing, God comes and says, this kingdom is not dependent on your righteousness. It's dependent on mine. And so John, longing for the day when God's going to come and reign as king, goes to the exact same spot where Joshua was the last time God came across the Jordan and inaugurated the kingdom. And this is what it says. When Joshua does that, he goes to this place, by the way. This is what the Jordan looks like right around that. It's not massive. I mean, you can imagine this. That's right near Bethabara. But when Joshua goes to the Jordan and he's preparing his people, okay, God is coming in the Ark of the Covenant and He's going to lead us into the Promised Land. It says, when you see the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God dwells, and the Levitical priest carrying it, you shall set out from your place and go after it. Follow it, that you may know the way by which you shall go. And then Joshua said, consecrate yourselves, for soon the Lord will do wonders among you. Does that sound like John the Baptist? The Lord is coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Consecrate yourselves. Make yourself holy. Wash yourselves. Set yourselves apart. And then when the Levitical priests, the Levites, remember, the Levites grab hold of the Ark of the Covenant and they go down and as soon as they step into the waters of the Jordan, what happens? It's an amazing miracle. God parts the Jordan waters all the way to the city of Adam and it's like God is saying, there is your kingdom. Go get it. What happens at the baptism of Jesus? John the Baptist, remember he's the son of the Levite, so he's a Levite, just like those guys. And here comes God in the flesh, not in an Ark of the Covenant. And John, this Levite, grabs hold of God in the flesh and steps foot in the Jordan. And what are you waiting for? You're waiting for the waters to part, for God to say, hey, there's your kingdom. But God does something unbelievably beautiful, far better. He doesn't part the Jordan. He parts the heavens. 
And the Spirit of God comes down like a dove and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And it's as if God is saying, you want the kingdom of heaven? You want to know the way to the kingdom of heaven? There He is. He is the way. When He tells His disciples, I'm going to have to go to the cross, I'm going to be raised, and I'm going to be ascended into heaven, and they say, but, but where will we find you? He says, you know the way. Thomas pipes up and says, well, hang on a minute. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. I am the way of the Lord. I am the highway to your God. So John continues and he lays down this this very hard message of the judgment to come. And he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and his sandals I'm not worthy to carry. That's the lowest position of a slave, and the greatest man in Israel at the time is saying, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. And I want you to stop there for a moment because John, has, it seems if you just read this passage apart from Christ, it seems like John has taken 10,000 cinder blocks, come to your shoulders, and gone, good luck. Right? Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And you just want to go, oh my goodness. Until you remember the words of Jesus, right? Abide in Me. He who abides in Me will bear much fruit. But apart from Me, you can do nothing. Your salvation, your pathway to heaven, it's all in Him. Your righteousness, your ability to follow after holiness, it's all in in Him. Abide in Him. He is the solution. And all you have to do is grab hold of Him by faith and trust in Him. And He takes care of all the rest. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And thank goodness, because listen to what the Holy Spirit enables us to do. Jesus Himself says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some who do not believe. Or Paul who says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot. You can't do it in your own strength. Stop trying. Grab hold of Him who's done it for you. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And Peter, finally, if you're wondering, how do I get the Spirit of God? How do I, how do I receive all this? He says this, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because the first part is that God is going to bring the Spirit, but the second part, and this is the unpleasant part, God is going to bring fire. 
to each of us. 1 Corinthians 3 says that we will pass through, as believers, pass through fires of glorification. That the Old Testament teaches us what happens when the presence of God is in the midst of flames. You see it when Moses encounters the burning bush and he can't figure out why is this bush not being consumed? Why not? Because the presence of God is there. Or you look at Moses who goes to Mount Sinai and everybody says there's no way he's going to survive it. The mountain is covered with flames and smoke. No one could survive that. Moses not only survives it, he comes down transfigured and glowing. Or Elijah who goes to heaven in a chariot of fire. Now we think that's cool. That's not cool. If, if, if after church my pathfinder is on fire and I say, hey, want to ride? You're not going to be like, all right, this is neat. But Elijah is not burned by the fires. He's transfigured into glory because the presence of God is here. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace and the king says there's a fourth man that appears like the Son of God and none of them are burned. You see, Jesus is coming to bring fire to this world. The question, are you in Him or are you left to face it alone? Jesus says this. He doesn't back down from what John says. He says, I have come to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. What He means there is I wish that this world were redeemed and perfected and glorified. I wish that we were done with oppression and injustice and poverty and hatred and all the ills and miseries of this world. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it's completed. And you want to know, you think, well, wait a minute, Jesus didn't get baptized again. Yes, He did. He got baptized by the fires of judgment on the cross. He hung on the cross and bore the wrath of God so that you could be shielded, so that you could be glorified. You see, in the waters of the Jordan, we, we confessed our sins. Jesus confessed His righteousness. He goes down in the water saying it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And then on the cross, the next baptism, Jesus takes the sins that we've confessed and those that we haven't, and He snatches them to Himself, bears the wrath of God so that we don't have to. He extinguishes the penalty. And He takes His perfectly fulfilled righteousness and clothes you in it so that when God looks at you, He says, this is my beloved son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. That's the reason why on the wedding day He will rejoice over you. Because you will be beautiful and radiant in the image of His Son. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And this Advent season, we give thanks that all the places that are desolate in our lives, all of the places that are barren, all of the wilderness in our lives, we look to the gift that God will give of Jesus in the manger, the Jesus who goes to the cross to bear our wrath for us. But I want to invite you this Advent season, spend some time in the wilderness. 
Reflect on all of those places that you are waiting for God to transform into a garden. Long for it like they did. Be quiet with God like they were. And when Christmas morning comes, rejoice. Your cure lies in that manger. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank You so much for Your goodness to us. I thank You for the hope of a new beginning. I thank You that when we failed time after time after time, Lord, You weren't content to just let us keep spiraling. You stepped into creation. You took on flesh. You bore the injustice. You bore our depravity. You suffered for it and extinguished it. You canceled the penalty of sin and death that hang over us. And you've called us to then take this road of holiness, this channel of life-giving water, and to take it out into the wilderness so that things may flourish. Lord, I pray that this Advent season, you would help us to realize all the ways that we're longing And that rather than relying on our own cisterns, Lord, you would give us the wisdom to go to the wellspring and to drink deeply and richly from your goodness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.